Welcome to the Self Fellowship Church Podcast. Here at Self Fellowship, we exist to help people live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. Wherever you're listening from today, we hope you are encouraged by this week's message. Good morning, friends. How are you doing today? If you're visiting, my name's Alex. I'm one of the pastors here. It's great to have you here. We're making this transition from the season of fall Thanksgiving into potentially at some point a winter if the weather ever drops below 60 degrees. But we're we're making this movement and hopefully you guys had a a great Thanksgiving. I got to deep fry a turkey for the fourth year in a row. And, And I always say this is like my one day of kind of tapping into some kind of hillbilly type side to me. I'm just, I'm more likely to wear plaid on this day and stuff like that, and I dropped this turkey, and I just feel really manly. Uh, that's the downside was it's got a little boring after four years. Now I, I, it's, it just feels normal. So I got to do that, though, and it, and it was delicious and wonderful. And then, and I have to say this because it's been nine years, I got to watch Michigan beat Ohio State yesterday, and... and yeah, go blue, <laughs> even in Colorado. Uh, and so there was this deep, deep joy. Uh, and now I'm navigating for myself this movement towards Advent. And many of you will be navigating the same ways, perhaps in controversial ways within your own house. I have a principle. We do not decorate before the 1st of December. That's just locked in my head. My wife has a different principle. And so out of the goodness of my charity and all those types of things, uh, we decided we would decorate earlier this year. And so the stuff's starting to come up. But here's the tension, really. Advent, this season in the church calendar, and if that word is familiar, unfamiliar to you, it literally means this approach of God's advent, his entrance into the world in Jesus. Advent traditionally is not a season of bright lights. Advent is a season where we recognize that there is darkness both in the world around us and within our own hearts, and you don't have to go very far to find it. Advent has not generally been a season where we sing all Christmas songs. So all through Advent, what you'll get is the tension of songs that we will sing that reflect the idea of the coming of Jesus. The wonderful words of that last song we sang, here comes heaven, this approach of God into the world. You'll see the lights of Christmas and all those sorts of things. And yet there will be some darkness to the conversations that we will have during this time. So much so that I think I scared away half the first service this morning. I'm not sure some of them will come back, to be honest. It got a little heavy. If it gets too heavy for you, you know where the doors are. I'm not sure what I can do about it at this point. It is what it is, but it was weighty. So we start with this idea here. What are our expectations of Christmas? Maybe what are our expectations of Advent as well? And how is that impacted by reality? This conversation will allow us to tap into some of the struggle, into some of the darkness. What are our expectations at Christmas? Because whether they are spoken or whether they're just somewhere in the back of your mind, you have them. You have expectations of what a good Christmas season is looks like. Maybe it just reflects back on some of the things you experienced in your childhood, especially if you had a good childhood. You might say there's things that I look back on and I long to create the same moments I experienced for my kids or my grandkids. 
And these things can be pretty weird. They don't have to be uniform at all. My dad always bought loads of nuts at Christmas. Like he would go to the store and he would come back with like baskets of nuts and he would put them all over the house. I don't even like nuts, but something about Christmas makes me want to buy them because it taps somewhere back into some of my childhood experience. I have one memory of Christmas from around the time of seven or eight where I won this mammoth game of Monopoly. I'm talking about a game that went on for hours and hours. That's actually just Monopoly all the time. It always goes on for hours and hours. And and we got to the finish at like two o'clock in the morning and I won. I was victorious and it makes me want to play Monopoly at Christmas. As for winning, I'd like to just finish a game of Monopoly with kids. You just feel like, I don't know if I've ever finished a game of Monopoly. I always do the good parenting thing where I put everything into little envelopes and say, we'll start again tomorrow, kids, and we never do. But there's all these weird little things that we may tap into and say, that signals Christmas to me. And if I get to eat these foods and I get to be with these people and have these experiences, then therefore it has been a good Christmas. Maybe if you wanted to summarize these into some categories, we might say this, Christmas, we want to be around family. We want to experience wealth. And when I say wealth, I don't necessarily mean excess. I just mean having enough. And we want to experience health. And one of those three missing can definitely throw off our experience. If you find yourself lonely at Christmas, there is that sense of this doesn't feel right. If you find yourself not having enough at Christmas, that in itself can throw you off. My neighbors are currently throwing up decorations all over their house. And in good American fashion, I'm trying to keep up with everybody around me because that's how you know you've been successful, right? And I thought I had a chance till one of my neighbors drove into our cul-de-sac with a crane lift on the back of his truck. Uh, And there he was, $500 a day splashing decorations everywhere. And at that point, I gave up and surrendered. But wealth can just mean that you want to have the same things everybody else has. And then, of course, health. Those times where you're sick at Christmas can make you think, wow, what what is going on here? I feel like something is out of whack, especially if that sickness leads you to question just how many more Christmases you'll get to experience. These things are what you might call reality, and they hit our expectations or our understanding of Christmas. Now, here's what's interesting. Think about things that you do at Christmas. Many of you will tap into watching a bunch of Christmas movies. Most of the movies you watch at Christmas They're not normal expectations. Expectations get thrown out of the window with these types of movies. They're not normal at all, so we have the wonderful Home Alone. What is Home Alone really about? It's about a couple of thieves who are so intent on one house that they'll, they'll, they'll attack one small child in the midst of this incredible drama instead of just walking away. It's a break from what's normal at Christmas to something over the top and absurd. There's Die Hard, and I don't know if Die Hard is a Christmas movie in Colorado. I mean, jury's out, right? Some people, yes, some people know it's as controversial as pineapple on pizza, I believe. Uh, But there is this this moment where suddenly a, a simple Christmas party, everything again goes out the window. Expectations are cast aside, not by reality, but by absurdity. There's the Santa Claus, a normal everyday guy suddenly finds out that he is the new Santa Claus and he's inherited this through some kind of tradition that's been running for years and years. And then even this newer movie, this is the Christmas Chronicles, has this weirdness to it. It's, it's the, the 
extravagance of Christmas meets a family in their mundaneness, in their normalness. And, and this Santa Claus somehow rescues this family that are going through family drama and struggle. He rescues them into the spirit of Christmas or some kind of high idea like that. None of these are really about reality meeting expectation. They're about absurdity meeting expectation. And yet in our moments of experience in Christmas, when everyday life encounters what our expectations are, I wonder if it just really throws us off. What happens when reality meets our expectations? What happens when our picture of an ideal Christmas season is met by some part of life that we didn't expect to turn up at that moment? Maybe some of the best Christmas movies actually deal with this struggle. This is a picture of The Family Stoner, a movie that wrestles with what it is to fall in love with someone you're not supposed to fall in love with, but also wrestles with what it is to have death in the midst of the Christmas season. What does it mean when a family loses someone who is deeply beloved and there is an absence around the Christmas tree? The Bing Crosby song, I'll Be Home for Christmas, finishes with this poignant additional line. It's the image of a soldier in World War II imagining that he might return home and all of the things he wants to experience during that season. He wants mistletoe, he wants snow, he wants all of these different things that make his Christmas perfect. And then he ends with this poignant line, I'll be home for Christmas if only in my dreams it's this moment of realization that he won't be home at Christmas, that he may never get home for Christmas. The struggle with this Christmas season is Christmas is a force multiplier. Christmas is a force multiplier. What does that mean? It means this. If, it, if you've had a good year, Christmas makes it better. If good things, your general experience of 2021 has been, I've had all of these joys to celebrate. Maybe you've had good health. Maybe you've had a new addition to your family. Maybe something has changed in a relationship. All of these different things take place and you get to Christmas and you get to celebrate. But if you've had a bad year, what does that mean? If you've experienced struggle, if you've experienced things that aren't ideal, well then Christmas has the potential to make a bad year worse. I knew this early on in my experience of pastoral ministry. I was running a Christmas event, and on Christmas Eve Eve, about 11 o'clock in the evening, someone called me and said, I'm leaving the church. The person who called me just happened to be running all of our Christmas event for us the next day, and suddenly in this moment said, I just can't keep doing this anymore. So in my conversation, I said, there's got to be a story behind the story. Tell me more. And he went on to unpack that his wife had got into a conversation with another person on staff that he just didn't like, and that was enough for him to say, at this point, I'm out, I'm done. Now, was that thing itself enough to push him to this monumental decision? Absolutely not. But so much else had been going on in his life that when Christmas season came along, suddenly it was like this increased weight. Suddenly it felt like everything might collapse. It made everything a big deal. This is what this Christmas season does. It becomes a force multiplier that takes the good and magnifies it. And it takes the bad and it magnifies it. It takes the good and it adds weight to it. It takes the bad and it adds weight to it. We walk into this season and suddenly things that we didn't expect to become a big deal, become a big deal. And when I experienced this for the first time in this conversation, I called a friend later that week and said, can I just ask, do people act weird at Christmas when you're a pastor? And he said, yes, they do. 
every Christmas and every Easter, he said, I know that I'll get some phone call with some piece of drama that actually wouldn't have been a big deal at any other time of year. As we walk through Advent towards this season of Christmas, we get to become aware of the number of ways that that affects us. It affects our emotions, affects our responses to things. So what is the traditional response to that feeling? How do we respond? During the course of this sermon, I'm going to give you three possible ways that I think we could approach Advent. One is buried in this text in a book called Micah we're about to look at. But this first one I would suggest is the Western way of dealing with it. When we experience that sense of trauma, when we experience struggle, when we experience hardship, when reality impacts our Christmas experience, when it impacts our expectations, I would suggest this is what we do. We put up the lights and pretend it's all right. We put up the lights and we pretend it's all right. If you've got loads of lights all over your house, this, isn't, this is meant more of, as, of as, a, as a joke than an actual attack. But I sometimes wondered if the more lights you have on your house, the more struggles there are going on inside the walls. Sometimes it can just be a way of covering up all those different things, or maybe just an excuse for me not to put any lights on my house this year. But I wonder if that becomes our hypothesis. Put up the lights and pretend it's all right. If you want a question to reflect on, as you encounter this season, you may ask this, how am I pretending? How am I in this season pretending? What have been my experiences of 2021? And as I come closer to this Christmas season, how am I pretending I'm just okay with everything? Advent is an alternative season where the church in its history has experienced and embraced the idea of waiting. We've celebrated this season where we build up towards Christmas and we recognize that a group of people, the Jewish people, waited for hundreds of years for this moment where the Messiah would appear. We recognize the fact that for 2,000 years since Jesus' death and resurrection, the church has waited for his return, waited in the tension of what comes next. But more than just waiting, Advent is an alternative season of waiting for light in the midst of darkness. For light in the midst of darkness. So during the season, what we're going to do over the next four weeks is we're going to, to read alongside a group of men called prophets. We're going to read some of the minor prophets and we're going to embrace some of the ways they talked about Jesus before he appeared on earth. And we're going to ask some questions about what that might mean for us today. So if you have a text in front of you, you can turn to Micah chapter 5. It will come up on the screen when I read it through the second time. But for now, I'm just going to read it out loud for you. When you turn to Micah chapter 5, in your Bible, it will probably say that five, chapter 5, verse 1 starts off, marshal your troops. In the original Hebrew text, that's actually the last verse of chapter 4. So we're going to start in verse 2. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come from me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. Let's pray. 
God, as we read this text, as we join with a group of people who waited for hundreds and hundreds of years for a new light to appear in the world, for something to happen, we join them in our waiting as we prepare ourselves for this new season, for this Christmas moment where on Christmas Eve we celebrate your entrance and advent into the world. Prepare us to look and recognize that there is a world that experiences so much darkness and that often that darkness is in our own hearts as well. Would you challenge us and form us? Would you comfort those of us that are afflicted? Would you afflict those of us that are comfortable? Most of all, would you speak, bring your presence? Amen. So what can this text possibly mean for a group of people in the 21st century? We just read a text that's about 2,700 years old that has some vague ideas about a future coming king. Now, if you've been following Jesus for a fair while, if you've been doing this church thing for a while, you may just say instantly, well, we just read about Bethlehem. That must be talking about Jesus. And the answer is yes, and or no, because maybe it is to us, but to a group of other people, I would suggest it probably didn't mean that originally. Before we get into that, a note on what the word prophet means in the Bible. There are a bunch of books in the Old Testament that are called prophetic books written by a mixture of people called major and minor prophets. That doesn't mean some of them are important and some of them aren't important. It simply means that some of them wrote longer texts and some of them wrote shorter texts. But we might start here. A biblical prophet did lots of forth-telling along with some foretelling. Lots of foretelling along with some foretelling. So what does that mean? Foretelling is really to proclaim against something, to bring out some truth. So these prophets, for the most part, would look at society and they would call out a bunch of ills in society. They would point out the ways that people weren't acting the way that God was calling them to act. They would demand change. If you want a picture today, we're talking far more, far more along the lines of social activists than we are fortune tellers or the people that we may imagine. This is what these people did. They spoke to society, but occasionally, just occasionally, there were moments where in a different way, they spoke to something that was going to happen in the future. Now, the tension line here is that they were always kind of talking about the future, mostly along these lines. If you continue to act like this, bad things will happen to this nation. Again, same language that you hear in many social reformers or social activists today. If you keep acting like this, things will go south very, very quickly. And then occasionally they would point to these things that were actual events that were happening in the far off. And the line isn't always super clear. This is a moment where Micah, the prophet we just read, will do that forth telling peace. As he has shown you, O mortal, what is he has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God? Right after a section where he points out all of the ways that these people aren't doing these things, he then says, no, this is what God is calling you to do. This is the life he is calling you to live. This is foretelling. And then there are those moments of foretelling which fits the passage that we just read today. So I think we often, when we hear foretelling, picture this guy who's available on every boardwalk and can tell your future precisely, reportedly, for a mere $5 or something like that. But we have these pictures of sort of these 
these what we might call prophetic type people, maybe Sybil Trelawney from the Harry Potter movies, something like that is these pictures of people that predict the future. That just generally isn't how prophecy worked in the Old Testament. For the most part, prophets would speak to what would happen if society continued as it was going, and occasionally they would have those moments where in incredible ways God would give them some picture of the future. But that picture was usually a little bit more blurred than we appreciate today. There were usually lots of ways that that could be interpreted at its time. And this passage is one of them. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are smaller than the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me, one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. You and I hear Bethlehem and we think Jesus, a Jewish people, when Micah was writing this, hear Bethlehem, and they think David. Micah wrote this in about 720-ish BC, just before everything went terribly badly for the nation of Israel, and then following that, the nation of Judah. In 701 BC, the capital of Samaria, uh, the capital of Israel, Samaria, would be captured, would be overthrown. Everything went very badly from there, and the nation of Judah had the same fate about 100 years later. Micah is speaking into a time of incredible trauma, incredible brokenness. And so when he says a ruler will come from Bethlehem, every single Jewish person listening would say, wait, David came from Bethlehem. And when we had David, life was great. When we had David, other nations respected us. When we had David, things were on the up. Things were good. If only, if only we could have David again. That would be where their directions, that would be where their thoughts went. And we'll skip over this awkward little bit for just a second because it does get a little bit awkward. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. Michael will then go on to say, he will stand and shepherd, David was a shepherd, his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. There's this moment where these first listeners to Micah would have said, man, God is promising us greatness again. In the midst of our struggle, in the midst of our brokenness, God is promising us a preferred future. And it will be just like when David was here. You might say that the first, to the first listeners, Micah's words could be understood as, wait for a time when you're past will become your present. Wait for a time when all the good things you've lost will be restored to you. Wouldn't that tap into the cry of their heart? And at times, wouldn't that promise tap into the cries of our hearts? If only I could go backwards. If only things could be as they used to be. Things were so much better when it was like before. But then these awkward words that are just thrown there in the middle of this, Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son. How can he speak of these moments where everything's going to be great again and at the same time speak of abandonment, same time speak of tragedy, same time speak of a nation whose God has left them? This whole conversation reflects this constant tension point for these people in Israel. And I would suggest a constant tension point for you and I as well. When we experience moments where reality hits our expectations, where things don't feel like they should be, they knew this. 
God is an agent. To the people of Israel, that was without dispute. God worked. He did things. And he was on their side for the most part too. God was an agent who worked in the world. So they could pray prayers like this. This is uh, Isaiah speaking at the same time as Micah within just a few years. Look at the language here. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you as when fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil. Come down and make your name known to your enemies and cause the nations to quake before you. For when you did awesome things that we did not expect, you came down and the mountains trembled before you. Since ancient times, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. This was an articulation of another prophet who says, God acts and he will act. He's acted in the past and he's going to act for us now. God is an agent in the world. He does things, he works. And yet, at times for this people, God is an agent who has gone missing. Why aren't you doing it now? Why do you make us wait? When will it happen? We've been waiting for so long. When does the action take place? Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. When does the action take place? Just as it was for them, when reality hits our expectations, isn't that our cry as well? God, why aren't you doing something? Why aren't you acting now? Why have you, in the language of Psalm 74, why have you put your hand in your pocket and just said, I'm just going to wait. Just going to wait. As people, we don't like that tension point. We want God to work when we want him to work. And when he doesn't, we're like, I don't know what to do with that. In Samuel Beckett's book, Waiting for God Out, there's a, a conversation he imagines between two people who are waiting for some person to turn up. They're not sure who he is. He might be God. He might not be. But they're waiting and waiting and waiting. And in the midst of their waiting, in the midst of their conversation, there's this one moment where one of the speakers, he gives this heart-rendering cry he simply says nothing happens nobody comes nobody goes I'm waiting and waiting and it's just it's just waiting that's all it is I wonder how many times these people that we first read about responding to Micah I wonder how many times in that moment of abandonment and that moment of it's not all making sense in that moment of God isn't acting they were tempted to just say it's never going to happen we're just done with this thing because haven't you and I felt close to that point as well? Or don't you at least know people who have gotten to that point? I just can't wait anymore. If God is an agent, he should have acted by now and he hasn't acted. While we have the Western approach that we talked about earlier, the Western approach to Advent, the Western approach to reality hitting expectation, which is to put on the lights and pretend it's all right, I think there's a temptation to a different approach that is equally troubling. I think that's the approach of turn off the lights and embrace the night. Can't do this anymore. Can't do this. I can't pretend that Christmas fixes things. I can't pretend that everything is okay. I can't keep going. And so I'm just done. I'm just done. I can't. Nobody comes. Nobody goes. I can't wait anymore. 
can't keep waiting. I wonder how these Jewish people felt after hundreds and hundreds of years of waiting, hundreds and hundreds of years of telling the story. When Micah writes, it's been 300 years since David lives. And even if these people would come to believe that Jesus was the person he claimed to be, it's 700 years from Micah's writing until Jesus appears. Isn't that more waiting than people can be expected to do? One lifetime after another lifetime passes and this group of people are still waiting for something. And we might add experience lifetime after lifetime, but isn't there a cry in us that I'm still waiting for something? And maybe we don't even know what we're waiting for. Maybe a question for reflection might be, what am I waiting for? What am I waiting for? Nobody comes, nobody goes. It's awful. We just keep on waiting. Does God act? Will he act? Why does the world look the way it looks, these are articulations that we may make deep in our own hearts, questions that we might ask. Have I been abandoned? Did the God of the universe stop caring? Did he stop working for me at least? There's a struggle with this word abandoned. This writer throws in this word abandoned. And of course, we're working from an English translation of a Hebrew text. I don't love this translation abandoned. I don't think it gives it the full meaning. And I think when we understand some of the full meaning, maybe it gives us a third way of looking at this that isn't just put on the lights and pretend it's all right, but doesn't land in embrace the night, doesn't land in it's all going to be awful forever. Maybe there's another way that gives us some hope to move us towards Christmas. This word abandoned, it only appears translated like this once in the Old Testament. In other places, it's translated more like this. Give them up to something. Allow them to go through something. The language actually has a little bit more purpose than abandoned gives it. There is this journey that somehow God is still involved in, even though he isn't necessarily completely visible in the story. When we understand what Micah says that way, it starts to tap in a little bit more to some other texts that we might think of. When we think about this experience of night, of darkness, this is Psalm 139, just one of my favorite texts. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light becomes night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day for darkness is as light you. This writer of the Psalms pictures even in those moments of waiting that God is somewhere behind the scenes working, somewhere he is inactive. He may not be agent in a way that we can see, but somewhere he is still acting. This is a letter that Nelson Mandela wrote to his wife as he was experienced this sense of abandonment in prison. He said, I wish I was in the position to tell you something that could gladden your heart and make you smile. But as I see it, we may have to wait a long time for that bright and happy moment. In the meantime, we must drink the bitter cup to the dregs. Perhaps, no, I am sure the good old days will come when life will sweeten our tongues and nurse our wounds. I wish I was in the position to tell you something that could gladden your heart and make you smile but we may have to wait. This is a man who at this point has been in prison for six years and will be in prison for another 20 years. 
This is a man who in this season learns what it is to wait. And I don't know where his, Jesus with, his journey with following Jesus looks like at all. But what I do see is a man who experiences what it is to sit in darkness and believe a new story can come from that darkness. I wonder if that's the direction we're called to go at Advent. Not to just pretend everything is fine. Not to give in to the defeat that nothing will ever change, that nobody comes, nobody goes, and it's just awful. But I wonder if somewhere there's a way in this season we get to do this. I wonder if we can acknowledge the night, but wait for the light. I wonder if we can acknowledge the night, but wait for the light. I wonder if we can allow ourselves in the midst of those experiences of darkness and struggle, in those moments where reality hits our expectation in a way that we just don't like and just feel shouldn't be. I wonder if there's a possibility in that moment that we can wait and believe that light will appear. 700 years these people of Israel would wait until this moment that a Messiah would appear. Then most of the Jewish people didn't believe it was him, but so ingrained in their minds was the idea of Bethlehem with this Messiah that when Jesus appears and somebody asks, tell us where the Messiah is born, the answer is is just instantaneous. This is Matthew chapter 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judah, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard that he was this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. <laughs> in Bethlehem in Judah, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. For 700 years, this text had lurked in the consciousness of these people in Israel. And now in this moment, it finally appears. It's no wonder that we write songs like, O little town of Bethlehem, with this incredible first verse. O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above the deep and dreamless sleep, the silent stars go by. Yet in thy dark streets shineth the everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. Constantly, Advent will play on that interchange between darkness and light and this moment of this emergence of hopes and fears. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in the baby in Bethlehem. This is the moment that they've been waiting for. But what hopes, whose hopes are met? Because it's not the people of Israel's hopes. It's not David. It's not what they expected. It's not a king that will come and build the empire of Israel back up again. It's not someone who will come and overthrow the Romans in the way that they expected. It's not the hopes and fears they expect to get met. It's not the expectation they have of what the world should look like. It's a different kind of reality. It's a different kind of emergence of light. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. They will live securely. These people of Israel pictured a military leader that would come and bring rule, and yet what they got was far more like David as shepherd who would nurture and care for his people. 
What they got was new light emerging, something changing in the way that the world worked. All of this story has been building and leading to this moment where God steps into his own story. And that too leads on to this moment of Easter, this moment where we get to experience this death and then this resurrection. This is a story that God has been preparing for years and light is emerging out of darkness. And yet a whole group of people missed it. And why? Because the story didn't look like the old story. They couldn't see a new story emerging. They could only look for the old story. In this moment in Easter, in Easter, in this moment in Advent, as we walk towards Christmas, we get to acknowledge the darkness around us and in our own hearts also. And yet we get to move towards Christmas, believing that God has constantly and joyfully and repeatedly brought light out of darkness. And he does it over and over again. In this season, as you are tempted to have maybe these two approaches, maybe your personality and your temptation is, I'm going to put on the lights and I'm going to put on the, the smile and I'm going to pretend everything is fine. I get to let you know you don't have to do that. That you need to have a space where you can say, I am not okay, it is not all right. This year has brought trauma and hurt and pain. And you need someone to be able to share that with. But you also don't need to descend into nobody comes, nobody goes, it's awful. Because this God, this God of the universe has specialized in turning up and bringing light from darkness. In this season, you can acknowledge the darkness in this world and your own heart also, but believe that the new light emerges from that darkness. I'm going to invite Aaron and the team up on stage to lead us in worship. And we're going to move afterwards to this lighting of our first candle. It is the candle of hope. My hope is in this moment, wherever you are on that journey, whatever you see in the world around you, whatever darkness you wrestle with, that in this moment, we would light that candle and it will kindle hope for you. Hope not in a return to an old story of a warrior king, but hope in a shepherd king who came to rescue his people in whom you are included. <laughs> Ta-da! <laughs> hope is kindled! told you it was too heavy. <laughs> God, as we uh, prepare to walk into this season of Advent, as we take our first steps towards Christmas, we acknowledge our experiences, our struggles. Would you show us a glimmer of light as we light this first candle? May it create hope in our own hearts the hopes and fears of all the years were met in a stable 2,000 years ago. But that journey was fulfilled on a cross and then through resurrection and into new life. For those that need afflicting, would you afflict us? For those that need comforting, would you comfort us? Amen. If God is working in your life through this ministry, join us in reaching others by partnering with us today. 
You can give online at southfellowship.org give or on the South Fellowship Church app. Thanks for listening, South Family. Have a great rest of your day.